And I'm Steph. And you're listening to The Thirst, a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture as well as dissecting some very important topics of our choosing. It's June 2022 and we're here with a new two-part format. Each month we'll bring you an episode called Under Review, where we talk about some recent releases in film, TV and music, followed by another episode later in the month called Obsession of the Week. This is where we'll take a deep dive into everything from the Met Gala and director retrospectives to top 10 lists. You know, the important stuff. This episode, we're airing our thoughts on Alex Garland's folk horror film, Men, the BBC adaptation of Conversations with Friends, and of course, Harry Styles' third studio album, Harry's House. Hi, April. Hello. How are you doing today? Uh, Quite well, how are you? Yeah, good. Excited by our new format. Uh, New year, new year. Yeah, yeah, just only six months in. In June. Six months later. Fine. It's very timely for us. Fine. Always makes sense. The changing of the seasons. That's perfect. A lovely summer shake-up yes, exactly. of formats. Precisely. Almost like it was intentional. Yes. And also maybe to tackle our three-hour-long talk fests. It's fine. Just seems like a better idea. I think it's fine. I think it's great. Yeah. Um. So, firstly, we're talking about men. Men. Am I right? Men. Men. Am I right? Bloody men. Until you give your love There's nothing more that we can do Apple from the garden? Y- yeah, it was delicious. No, 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 no. Mustn't do that. Forbidden fruit. Oh, God, sorry, I... I, I'm joking. This is the most recent thing we've watched. So, full disclosure, we watched this mere hours ago. So Literal hours. Literal hours. Only asleep between... A film called Sunshine and, of course, 28 Days Later. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember watching and very much enjoying Devs during the first part of lockdown in 2020. And I'm sort of... I'm always really captivated by his... I guess it's sort of unique, but not really. But he has this kind of blending of like sci-fi and tech horror, yeah. especially in later, in recent years. Sorry, he's sort of focused on this, like the role that technology has in our lives and in the world around us, and how he does blend it with sort of more scientific sci-fi type themes and ideas. So I was intrigued going into it with the vague premise we were given, um, intrigued by the obvious COVID production element of it. Um, yeah, of course. Remote location, really small cast. Um, but a few of these, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. It felt similar to the way we were sort of intrigued by Ben Wheatley's surprise production of In the Earth, yeah. which we've talked about mm-hmm. before. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't take much for me to get hyped for an Alex Garland film just because I do have such an investment yeah. in his work and I'm always really keen to see what he does next. I was excited by this. It kind of came out of nowhere for me, as in like the initial trailer mm. teaser dropped. And I loved the idea of Alex Garland doing something a bit more folk horror. And as you say, kind of moving less of the tech sci-fi and more kind of something that sits more squarely in the horror genre, I guess. Annihilation was kind of a horror film for me in many ways. But yeah, this felt like a bit more genre specific. And it didn't surprise me that Garland would want to tackle something with quite heavy themes and Mm. symbolism as well. Like folk horror is very much known for that. Straight off the bat by that trailer which is a really good trailer, I must say. It had really strong um, a ghost story for Christmas vibes. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you ever saw... Did you ever see The Signalman? Which no, was I didn't. Like, yeah, it's like this 70s adaptation. It's part of a ghost story for Christmas. It was like one of the only ones that wasn't an M.R. James story, I oh, think. Okay. And uh, it was in the 70s. And it's about a signalman who keeps encountering this ghostly figure by the entrance of a rail tunnel. Oh, okay. So very, very specific um, kind of allusions to that I guess and also of I Whistle and I'll Come to You which is M.R. James and in the um, the adaptation and in the, the, the written story as well but in the adaptation there's this really horrible scene where a man is sort of dreaming of trying to flee from a figure in the distance on the beach who keeps running towards him oh, at God. speed yeah. it kind of really strangely it's like he keeps looking back and they don't seem to be getting any closer oh, okay. but they're like pelting towards him so mm. it's like a weird that tunnel scene in the trailer is a real mash of both of those so oh, interesting yeah so i was really excited by that and as you say we discussed in the earth before we've discussed the witch so there's loads of folk horror films that have seemingly come out like fairly recently i think Quite a few small budget horrors mm. work for folk horror, but also big things like In the Earth, The Witch, Possum, Midsummer, those things. And I'm not a particular expert, but there is something about that combination of terror and 
sort of the uncanny and our relationship to nature. And as you said, sort of, I think we've reconnected with that a in recent decades, but also way more recently because of COVID. Yes, definitely. So there's there's been a few that have come out in the mm. wake of or during um, the pandemic. Two things that made me feel slightly nervous about this film. Folk horror is very hard to do, I think, personally. Mm. You can kind of... Something can be an exercise in the imagery, but almost produce none of the feeling of a folk horror mm-hmm. film. And also men bit tricky to tackle as a yeah as a, you know it's like met okay we know off the bat even from the trailer what this is going to be about really it's funny that that's the title because yes. it almost really goads you into going into it with like preconceptions yeah. of like what it's going to be about which i think is the point yeah but it is yeah I, I sort of that was the thing for me i was like huh okay i think you're going there yeah it, it sets expectations and you can tell before you've even seen it, that there's it's going to be divisive. Mm. And um, soft ex-boyfriend Ari Aster kind of makes me prickle for the same reasons sometimes. Yeah. So I was yeah. like, mm, interesting territory. Let's see how it goes. Um, okay, so when we actually did get to see it yesterday, weirdly, we watched it in the afternoon uh, on a nice sunny day, which probably wasn't the right mood and atmosphere for it. I don't know, though, because I feel like it worked in the sense that there is something, because obviously it was bank holiday weekend here, mm-hmm. there is something sort of just not relaxed about it because nothing about this film is relaxed, <laughs> but there is this sort of like, nobody's at work, nobody's yeah. really doing anything. There is this sort of like leisurely in the countryside element to it. Yeah, that's true. Um, so actually I I completely understand where you're coming from, but I was quite, I, I thought it was worked quite well to have seen it during the day. It's probably a good thing that we didn't have to walk home in the well, dark and then afterwards. That, yeah, that was going to be my follow-up, is that I can't imagine going to see this and then having to walk home. No, that would be horrible, wouldn't it? Mm. Speaking of sort of mood and atmosphere, this film is very heavy on mood and, mood and symbolism, actually, but we'll tackle mood and atmosphere first, which I think, personally, I think is one of the most successful elements of the film. What did you think? Yeah, it works really well with the sort of, there's an underlying tension, unsettling vibes, that weird sort of, there's just a weird underlying vibe of like, something is not right here. Mm. It puts you on edge. Mm-hmm. For me, it felt a little bit like Royston Vasey, yeah. you know, um, League of Gentlemen, mm. the kind of, oh, yeah. you know, the whole like, the English countryside is fucking weird. Yeah. Which, living and in the English League countryside. League of Gentlemen is definitely folk horror as well. Absolutely. A um, bit hot fuzzy in that sense. Yeah. Because it's countryside weirdness. For sure. It's just this tension. The thing, the thing I think that worked so well about it is there's just this underlying... Like you have to, you can't relax because nope. you're sort of no expecting things to, and do things do happen. Mm. So I just think it just it, there's a pervading sense of unease yeah. for me, and yeah. that worked so well. And then it rapidly escalates. It does. It changes quite changes pace quite a lot. So yeah. we'll we'll discuss that in a minute. But I think you're right, and that that uncanny feeling, that tenseness, that um, discomfort but also whilst watching something that's kind of like frame by frame very beautiful mm. is a, I don't know, I really enjoyed that feeling and I felt I haven't had that feeling in a film for a while. I was thinking like the greatest thing about our natural landscape, so especially Great Britain and Ireland in particular, which I don't have much to, nice things to say about our country, but it's got this really intoxicatingly beautiful landscape that's also really quite frightening so when Jessie goes on her walk Mm -hmm. you've got the silence and the rain which is beautiful and comforting but it's also really lonely and it's that kind of dual sense of when you go into when you're into the countryside in our country I always get that dual sense of losing yourself to something bigger but also feeling like you're being watched the entire time which is very weird yeah it's fascinating that was something that I really picked up on and I found it like quite relatable in Mm. terms of like living in a slightly more rural location now um, and actually sometimes when you do go for a walk you will see nobody yeah but there is this absolute like not small town mentality but it's the fact that when you're yeah. in the countryside you're sort you are alone yeah. but you're also you're sort of not alone because because there is such such isolation mm-hmm. i feel like everyone is on guard a lot yeah. of the time so it's yeah. sort of like you can all you have to do is like maybe walk down the wrong footpath and happen to pass someone's mm-hmm. garden and they're like, you know, oh, who are you? Where have you come from? Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. just this like, oh, okay. I was actually feeling quite chill. Yeah. But now I feel really on edge. And I think that the film does get across that switch yeah. quite well. Absolutely. I thought that really worked. And that, I mean, I've already mentioned the tunnel scene, but 
I think that's probably one of the strongest scenes of the entire film. Almost a shame that they used it in the trailer because well, you knew what was happening and that I just thought that was a really, really good scene. Very Jamesian, again, harks back to those sort of B- BBC adaptations, but genuinely very frightening. It was really unsettling. I wish they hadn't used it in the I know, wasn't um, it like trailer. one of the best bits? Because it still, it still properly put the wind up me in the cinema, yep. but then also because I sort of had seen part of it, it felt less successful. Yeah, you knew that nothing else was probably going to happen in that moment outside yeah. of what we saw in the trailer, but there is something as a woman and also generally about doing something again privately or thinking you're alone and suddenly realizing someone else is there and there is really something fucking freaky about someone running towards you at pace well it's just a very it's just a very palpable switch that she has in that moment which i think actually like it really sort of succinctly captures what the the film as a whole does i think absolutely and another one harper walking around the cottage on the phone i thought that was like an exercise intention that yeah. worked really well and the kind of I did like some of the awkward I mean I know they're very on the nose but some of the really awkward conversations she has to endure with some of those men who have almost nothing to do with her but feel the need to do or say something really inappropriate I did feel very very tense as in it was very effective and then the only other thing from a sort of mood and atmosphere perspective that I really liked was the moment in the church and again I think it taps in and you'll understand anyone who lives basically in our country will understand that sort of like rural church is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite places because it has that very sublime terror of sort of there's nothing scary about a church but there's a very strong and overwhelming sense of sort of beauty but unknowable power Mm -hmm. and like it is that kind of lifting like terror to something that's sort of very sublime so I really liked that moment there are moments that I thought were really effective on and a very like atmospheric um I was scared I was kind of disgusted so it's that sort of gothic balance of kind of horror and terror that I haven't experienced for ages so I thought that was that really worked yeah um themes and kind of I've put symbolism together with themes and the kind of broader plot without giving away massive amounts of spoilers. But I don't know what you thought of those, but I thought that was probably the weaker half of the film. Yeah, it's interesting because I I don't... It's funny that you mention some of the more on-the-nose aspects Mm -hmm. of it. There's a lot of really heavy use of, like, metaphor. Oh, God, so much. It's like Midsommar again. Did you not think (sighs) that? Yeah, I did. Lots of... The Green Man motif is everywhere, which, like, great, because it kind of encapsulates a lot of what you're well, that, talking about. Because that's one of but... the things I did like, was the sort of invoking, like, the mythos and the mythology of the landscape. Mm-hmm. So, like, the sanctity of nature, imposing upon the land, like, the utilisations of things like Green Man mm-hmm. as a motif, like, Sheena and a gig, um, you know, like, the railway track in itself is this sort of, like, very structural imposition yeah. upon the land, which has now been boarded up. So I've yeah. thought a lot about that, that. In terms of things like the, like, female experience, the land is almost quite coded as being mm-hmm. feminine mm-hmm. absolutely um, and then when you've got the, the recurrence of the things like green man and like the sheen in a gig it sort of felt interesting but at the same time it's not like it's hugely revelatory no it's, it's fairly me. by numbers isn't it it I reminded think... me a lot of other things we've li- we've watched and talked about yeah yeah and i think that kind of genre like folk horror stuff kind of does rely on those bits quite heavily but yeah you're right the symbolism is very on the nose it's on the nose and i think that one of my criticisms of it is that looking at like women's trauma Mm -hmm. and grief and like the responsibility of women Mm -hmm. is something that seems to have been quite recurrent in films of this type Mm -hmm. of late yeah and that to me it just didn't it felt like it was attempting to present all of these ideas Mm -hmm. But nothing, not, none of them felt like they were new. Yeah. You know, like it's yeah. not that it was repetitive. No. But it's just a bit like, oh, I can, you're making me think of other things that we've watched. Yeah. yeah. And discussed either for the podcast or uh-huh. privately. Uh-huh. And it just felt like that was a shame. Yeah. I think I completely agree with you. I, I sort of made a note that the problem with this film is probably that it doesn't say anything particularly new mm. especially for a female viewer so yeah. you know it's a film we know it's a film about men uh, it's not going to be a celebration of men every plot point and symbol kind of leans towards this idea of an all-encompassing misogyny and male violence and it's sort of cyclical nature and 
it's quite bleak really because it's everywhere like it's yeah. boyfriends and the vicar down the road yeah. and the police and your airbnb host or whatever like it's pretty much everywhere and it will never let us rest mm. so that's not really news to us no and i th- i think like it it works mm-hmm. the one of the visual ways that it addresses that makes sense because it's just this I don't know, like sea of men. Yeah. You know, it's like the not all men, but sort of all men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Side of things. Yeah. Um, and it works. It, like, yeah. it makes sense. It's not, re- not that it's relatable, but I think that as like female viewers, you watch it and you understand. Mm-hmm. You get it. Yeah. And you, you kind of hit on the fact that there have been a few more of these types of films recently, which have all been mostly done by, like, directed well, by men, which is quite interesting as well. I think there's never not going to be... I don't know. The danger of tackling misogyny as a male director and writer is never is never going to be like without its difficulties. Is it's it? It's always unfortunately going to be flawed. Yes, like by its very nature, yeah. it just is. So yeah. that's like a, always going to be a valid criticism. I think I found the part of that those themes that I found slightly more interesting was kind of the guilt element mm-hmm. with Harper and that wearying experience of being made to feel guilty about something that you also know isn't your fault yeah. but that doesn't actually make it any better yeah and there's also like no point in trying to argue that it's not your fault because yeah. it's just so that kind of really wearied like heaviness that she had as someone who knows that she didn't really cause that and yet is haunted by the fact that maybe she caused it i don't know that i found that more interesting like i don't know if i've come across that as much in no and i know and i think to that end i think one of the aspects i thought was interesting is this idea that like she's removed herself from she so she travels from london Mm. into this rural location so she's attempting to remove herself from her home from the city where Mm. all of this sort of this traumatic experience that she has encountered has occurred Mm -hmm. she removes herself from the situation and puts herself in this sort of you know house in the countryside as an act of healing yeah but unfortunately it's not the place that's the issue yeah she carries that baggage Mm -hmm. with her and i thought that it sort of attempts to tackle that the fact that actually you can't run away from this Mm -hmm. feeling Mm -hmm. because it's with you and it sits with you Mm -hmm. so you could hop from location to location but it's not the place that's the issue it's sort of what you're carrying with you and i thought that you know because they they sort of very much address that Mm -hmm. in the film when she's like facetiming with her friend and talking about the fact that this is meant to be this like amazing healing experience Mm -hmm. for her and yet she's sort of like seemingly surprised that actually it's not the removal of her from her home Mm -hmm. that that, that's not the sort of transformative experience that she's anticipating absolutely yeah so there's kind of there are some interesting ideas there Mm. but some of it is slightly on the nose and yeah i guess there are just going to be inherent problems with like who and how this film is being made that i'm not gonna like it might be more successful than some other films i was thinking about how this would probably be drawn into a lot of the same conversations that Last Night in Soho Mm. have. But I personally found Edgar Wright's film actually to be more derivative and therefore more insulting. But I can kind of see that there are like similarities Mm -hmm. in sort of issues between those films. Did you like the performances in the film? Um, Bearing in mind there's not many performances. The thing thing that I keep thinking about is like Jesse Buckley is really at the heart of this film obviously as one of the like only performers in it but I think that there's so much that I liked about her performance that is what is what made it work for me yeah I I was trying to sort of think about actually how what the experience would have been like with other actresses just at the helm but there's something about her it made me obviously think a lot about her performance in I'm thinking of ending things yes yeah and actually like sort of what she does in in the Charlie Kaufman mm-hmm. film mm-hmm. it's not that it's similar to what she's doing no. in this one but it's that actually it's why it works yeah and it's Beast is similar as yes. well I think in kind of yeah you're right I thought exactly the same I thought she was genuinely great to be fair I don't think I've seen her in anything that I dislike her in no exactly but her performance totally holds the film together yeah and it is that experience of kind of everyday harassment turned up to 11 mm-hmm. of being frightened but also guilty and also very tired yeah. at the same time she is very very good she just has a weariness about Gosh, her so good that just works i just love her i she's think she's great. brilliant she just seems fab i liked rory kinnear's performance in that kind of because he was one of the only 
characters that I couldn't really predict. Mm -hmm. The others, you were like, okay, they're set pieces. You know what direction they're going to go in. And with his character, this kind of like bumbling rich man bit Alan Partridge, you kind of expect him to do something extremely inappropriate at any moment. He doesn't really, for the majority of the film, it's just kind of on the cusp of like, is he a bit weird or is he... So I thought he had more, the word isn't nuanced because it wasn't nuanced, but I don't know, there was something a bit more to his character, whereas everyone else was, all of the other men were obviously set pieces that you literally could move in, they would do what they need to do and then they leave again. There's something really interesting about casting him and I think a lot in comparison as well to Rhys Shearsmith in yes, in the Earth, yeah, in that there is something inherently strange and yeah. unsettling about Rory Kinnear, and I inevitably think of a lot of the other things that he's been in. Yeah. Most notably, I always see him and immediately think of Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, again, he's similar, been, yep, vibe. similar, similar yeah. vibe. And I think that actually that's why he's so successful in this film because you, he's obviously playing a few different people. Mm-hmm. But there is just something inherently unsettling about him Mm -hmm. yeah that i think is why he is sort of very well cast in this film yeah definitely because it's just he doesn't even really have to do a huge amount for me it's just that you put him in something and i'm immediately a bit like yeah yeah definitely definitely what were your general thoughts then afterwards your general overall feeling of whether the film worked whether it didn't work whether it was a good experience or not and sort of how does it compare with Garland's other work for you? I think ultimately for me, it is a real film of two halves. Mm-hmm. Um, it just gets sort of a bit odd towards the end. Yeah. And for me, it's not that the stuff towards the end is bad. Yeah. Because it's not at all. It just feels like it's tonally from completely a different film. Yeah. And for yeah. me, it ultimately undoes a lot of what I'd enjoyed from the first half of yeah. the film. So it sort of does descend into this slight body horror, transformative, Mm -hmm. physical change stuff. It's not that that's not anything that Alex Garland has played around with before, because he has. He's always looked at, you know, transformation and the sort of science enhancing, changing the body. This felt really physical in that sense. Probably, it's probably the most physical rendering of that in in any of his films, I think. Mm -hmm. But it just felt like there was just a hard pivot yeah. For me and it just it's it's not that I was like oh I hate this mm-hmm. it's just that like oh okay you're veering in that direction yeah. now great how does that then yeah draw back to the stuff yeah, at the beginning yeah, yeah it just seemed to really rapid like we were saying it rapidly escalated yeah in a, in a way that just sort of perplexed me um yeah. so to that end I think it's probably my least favorite of mm-hmm. his of the three films that he's directed yeah but at the same time maybe it's his most ambitious mm-hmm most ambitious but maybe least successful I think that's my at this point yeah that's my feeling yeah and I think you're probably right in that I kind of see it's a very academic way of looking at things and I haven't thought about it for ages but there's these sort of dual aspects of terror and horror so horror being something repulsive terror being something much more foreboding something more unknowable Mm. something more heightened Mm -hmm. and I felt like the first half of the film dealt with terror and the second half dealt with horror again which isn't necessarily a bad thing because they are on a kind of seesaw together but I can totally understand your feeling about it it's because it it gets so grotesque towards the end which I think Alex Garland does, for the most part, in most of his films, do quite well. Yeah. The presentation of this, again, I understand that the presentation of that final film could be seen as a bit insulting. Mm-hmm. I personally wasn't insulted by it, but I also completely understand on the yeah. flip side that it's that is going to be one of the really divisive elements yeah, of absolutely. this film. Yeah, completely. Um, I'm torn, really, because there are lots of moments of true fright and terror in this film that really do work it's unsettling it's kind of familiar and extreme so it's very effective in terms of that kind of mood and atmosphere and i haven't felt that kind of tension in a film like that for quite a while Mm -hmm. but as you said there isn't there's like a skeptical argument to be made that garland isn't doing or saying anything much beyond aren't men horrible I don't I don't think I've sat with this film long and I don't think I do think it's just feminist virtual signaling in the way that some other films do. I personally would probably give Alex Garland more credit than mm-hmm. that, but I do understand that it doesn't really say anything new particularly for a female viewer. There is always going to be something inherently 
awkward yeah. about a film yeah, yeah, like yeah. this being made by a Absolutely. guy. Um, some of it was a bit under the nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can completely understand it being divisive. But then I felt the same about Midsummer, and everyone bloody loved that. And I think yeah. they suffer from many of the same issues. But I, I think that as well. Yeah, that was something I kept thinking of. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I would... Someone with more time on their hands should watch that film again and do a dual conversation about it. But again, not my favourite Alex Garland film. I, I don't think it can beat Annihilation for me. But it had its successes and its failures. And I thought we'd discuss that we were either going to... We were like, we could all probably hate this film. I just think it might be awful. And it wasn't awful. I actually think there was a lot of really good stuff in it. I went in fully thinking that I was going to hate it <laughs> and it was going to be excruciating because I like Alex Garland yep. so much normally. Um, so from that point of view, I was moderately relieved because I did come away thinking like, actually... There was the some very that, effective bits Yeah, the stuff it. in there I like. I don't think it wholly is successful, no. but it's definitely... I didn't come away fueled with like rage hatred yeah not too much hatred no. okay just a bit of like weariness moderate weariness so next we're going to be discussing conversations with friends which is an irish television series based on the 2017 novel of the same name by sally rooney it's developed by element pictures for bbc3 and hulu in association with rte and it's the second adaptation of a rooney novel after the smash that was normal people which of course came out in the spring of 2020 conversations with friends was released on the 15th of may and comprises of 12 30 minute episodes the show has the same creative team as normal people most notably, of course, director Lenny Abramson and co-writer Alice Birch. However, unlike normal people, Conversations with Friends has a cast of semi-notables, including Jemima Kirk, Sasha Lane, Joe Alwyn, alongside newcomer Alison Oliver. The loose premise for the show is as follows. In Dublin, college students Frances and her best friend and ex-girlfriend Bobby are noticed by Melissa, a writer in her late 30s, when they are performing spoken word poetry together. Melissa invites them to her home where they meet her husband, Nick, who's an actor, and their four lives become increasingly entangled as Frances begins an affair with Nick and their friendships and relationships become rapidly more complicated. thought that maybe I wasn't capable of love, that there was something wrong with me. That isn't true. So, of course, we did discuss normal people way back at the start of 2020 2020 the first lockdown um so what were your expectations going into conversations with friends especially following normal people and the success of it um were you familiar with the book were you excited for it how we how did you sort of feel i think my expectations were probably a bit different to yours because i haven't read the book Mm -hmm. so i'm not familiar with the book i like the sally rooney books i have read i have not read them all conversations with friends is one that i haven't read i was feeling kind of pessimistic i just wasn't really bothered and hadn't paid much attention to it to be honest normal people was an unexpected pleasure Mm -hmm. thanks to the casting and the timing during lockdown Mm -hmm. Uh, and i felt quite skeptical that this was just an attempt to replicate the huge reaction that it prompted yeah and rooney's books don't always they don't feel like they naturally lend themselves to screen adaptation they're kind of quietly and domestically quite intense Mm -hmm. and insular yeah so how can you pull that off twice uh the the biggest positive was going to be as you said having lenny abrahamson on board again sort of was involved in normal people i loved room and the little stranger so like a good trustworthy name the casting was a bit of a weird one as well i felt like nice to have a newcomer in the same way as sort of Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Mescal when you come as for normal people. So having someone like Alison Oliver in the lead mm-hmm. that we don't know, we don't have any prior baggage, no expectations, very good, kind of suits Rooney's world. Yep. But bloody hell, like Joe Alwyn. Like Jemima Kirk, great, love Jemima Kirk. I can get on board with that. Sasha Lane, also great, but not like huge. But bloody hell, Joe Alwyn. It's like that's kind of the first disappointment earlier on. So I haven't seen him in that much. I think he was kind of in, you know, like small parts in Boy Erased and The Favourite and things like that. But he's obviously very widely discussed because of Tay-Tay. So I don't know. I was like, is he he charismatic enough to be a lead? And kind of will his background take me out of it? I was just feeling generally quite sceptical and sort of, why are we tempting to do this again? We're not going to recapture it. 
oh, we're just doing this with every single one of Sally Rooney's books now. And that was my feeling. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt, really. I was sort of cautiously optimistic. Um, I was really not for six by normal people in the sense that it just really took me by surprise. It was so much better than it should have been. Yeah, I felt like they'd managed to outdo themselves with that particular adaptation from the casting and the overall vibe. Because like you say, I think they did manage to take so much of what works from an insular level in Rooney's books and Mm. somehow make it work on screen so with conversations with friends I felt like it was coming quite soon after normal people completely understand the need to perhaps capture the momentum captivate on that momentum Mm. um, because of its popularity casting wise I wasn't particularly thrilled I think the problem Mm. for me is that I it's the first of obviously it's the first of this is one of your favorites yeah so it's the first of Sally Rooney's novels and I think it's her best and it's Mm. my favorite so on the one hand I was kind of pleased they were going to be adapting Mm. it but I think because it is my favorite well that's the peril of adapting a book that you love obviously we've talked about that on so many occasions and I think the issue is and I had a very similar response to normal people I had a very clear picture Mm. of who I thought the characters were how I thought they were so when the casting announcements did happen for me Jemima Kirk felt quite young compared to how I personally Mm. imagined Melissa Joel when is completely against how I pictured Nick Jamie Dornan where are you Jamie Um, Dornan I really love Sasha Lane um so I was intrigued by her casting particularly as she's American yeah um, in the book Bobby is absolutely not American and then I was just sort of like intrigued by the fact they decided to round out the cast with an unknown for Mm. Francis yeah just one unknown but everyone else yeah so I sort I think I was cautiously optimistic I was just very concerned at the speed with which this was coming which I would say wasn't unfounded so Mm. in terms of your initial reaction what did you think of this the 12 episodes of the show which we um I don't know slogged our way through yeah well so when we first watched so we watched the first episode together didn't we Mm -hmm. well we watched all of it together but we watched the first episode together and I was I was intrigued I have no prior knowledge of this book um, so it was coming in fresh and that meant I was interested in Bobby and Francis's relationship and also Francis's relationship with her parents in addition to obviously initially wondering what will happen with Francis and Nick. But the core relationship between Francis and Nick just felt really lacking from the start and I couldn't quite see in those early episodes what would immediately grab her about him. He felt very conventionally handsome, like absolutely fine. Sort of awkward, but not in that kind of unknowable, ungraspable way that some people have that just feels very attractive and Mm -hmm. mysterious. It wasn't really like that. It was just a bit kind of like, are you playing awkward or are you just not very good at acting? I don't know. So the accent was throwing me around a little bit as well. So the initial kind of thoughts very early on were intrigued, but for the reasons that weren't actually direct, related to Francis and Nick's relationship Uh it was all the other stuff around the edge that seemed interesting and I fucking love Dublin so I have a lot of time for it as a setting Um, and it has you know very similar elements to normal people in that it's got that kind of university setting which feels familiar but different and the sort of heritage of the city um, and all of that but yeah initially I thought there's enough here to pursue it for a bit longer but it didn't have the immediate pull of Connell and Marianne and their chemistry in normal people. Um, And then by the time we got to the end, my main thoughts were, fuck, that was long. (laughs) 12 episodes, I'm sure we needed that. Could have taken it down to eight easily. Um, And there just wasn't enough chemistry between Nick and Francis to, to sustain such a long run of episodes. I just don't understand why they'd be drawn to one another. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem for me is that ultimately I just couldn't buy into it. And I I kept comparing it to the book in largely unhelpful ways. It absolutely did not need to be 12 episodes. You're completely right. I think the slow pace of it... um, Oh, God, it was slow in some sections. It just... And I love a slow burner. Well, by contrast to normal people, which I think did have like a slow, melancholy Mm -hmm. vibe... Like I said, it's quite domestic yeah. in a setting quite banal not in a like do no, you know what I mean it's yeah, every day I do but this felt like more of a slog it, yeah. it, all, it sort of just seemed to gloss over so much of what I'd enjoyed about the mm. book whether that's the sort of 
on and off again nature of Bobby and Francis' relationship, the general tension between them, the way they sort of... I feel like in the book, and I could be misremembering this, but I feel like they just essentially do really heavily utilise both Nick and Melissa Mm -hmm. as a way to make one another jealous, Mm -hmm. even though it ultimately backfires. Um, And I don't think that comes across as much in the show. And I think you're right in that I... The, the problem with the show for me, you don't get an understanding for why Frances has such a desire for Nick. And that was one of the things when reading the book mm-hmm. that was like, this is obviously a shitty situation that all of these people are willing them, willingly putting themselves mm-hmm. in. But you sort of get why Francis yeah. would be going yeah, yeah, after yeah. Nick because just so Sally really does seem to describe him in a way where you're like, actually, yeah, I fucking get this. Like, I completely yeah. understand why if presented with this situation and this person that you know you may you may head in that direction but with joe alwyn as nick i was like i don't get it what am i not that was entirely my feeling as well when you can't buy into the intensity Uh, and the heat of a romance it's really hard to understand this was i kept commenting to you it's really hard to understand why you would allow someone to treat you you know a particular way and and that sort of applies to all of the characters Like, things are never as simple as, oh, but he's married. But it kind of felt like they were here because I just didn't get... I was like, I'm not getting the heat, therefore, why are you even bothering with this? And I think that's, again, by contrast to normal people, Mm -hmm. one of the things that worked so well about that series is there was such chemistry between Daisy Mm Edgar Jones and Paul Mescal. Like, you just kind of get it. You understand why these two people would consistently gravitate back towards one another. Mm -hmm. You just get it. You understood it. It felt radiated (laughs) off the screen. That's the whole point. And that's why we want to read stories like this. And I also felt that Frances's relationships with pretty much everyone else felt more interesting. Her relationship... I was more interested in her relationship with Melissa than I was her relationship with Nick. Well, that segues really nicely onto the sort of story and themes actually and the thing you know this idea of the book version and the tv version Mm. and i know that obviously you can't speak to the book aspect of it but it's nice that you bring the sort of francis's relationships with Mm. everyone else because i felt that was something that the the show lacked so much is this actually they focused they've honed in on this relationship between nick and francis but my reading of the book was always that the most re- interesting relationship at the core of that novel is Bobby and Francis. Yeah, that's what I and thought as well. while I do think that Sasha and Alison had sort of chemistry and Anna, yeah. there was something going on mm-hmm. there, it was just neglected a lot of the time in a yeah. really frustrating way. Yeah, yeah, it was. And Sally Rooney is all about relationships and there are very complex ones that play you know it mm-hmm. feels like a more complicated web than yeah. in yeah, some yeah. of her other books and you've got this older married couple younger set of best friends who are formerly in a relationship as well there's Frances's strained re- relationship with her parents there's Bobby and her parents you know there's a lot of discussion around sort of monogamy and mm-hmm. trust and you know even bisexuality and yeah. all of these things and yeah it just because it was being forcibly returned back to Francis and Nick I was like yeah pretty much all of these other relationships especially Bobby and Francis's yeah. I was more interested about exploring everything else in it just felt like aggressively Mm -hmm. sidelined for this what was supposed to be a a central relationship Mm -hmm. that ultimately didn't work because i think the stuff in the book that goes on between like bobby and melissa like you just obviously yeah because that was kind of touched upon and i thought oh that adds an even more interesting element and then it kind of that i just think that you just in the book you just get a more of a sense of like how dysfunctional these relationships of these four people mm-hmm. are but you just get a better rendering of mm-hmm. it from the page and actually you sort of understand their motivations and their actions a little mm-hmm. better because you are presented with like how these four people are in dialogue mm-hmm. together like you just get a better sense of it and i just in the show i just wasn't i just wasn't getting any of it and no. i think one of the flaws of it is that sally rooney is someone who often utilizes um or 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 puts on the page um how we communicate mm-hmm. so oh, in, yeah that's in, a... in the book it's in conversation with friends it is largely via emails but then how do you shift that to the screen you have to do things like phone calls texts facetime i just don't think it's wholly successful and i think that again that's just a general criticism of how difficult mm. it is to render that personal internal nature of phone use on a screen mm. which again goes back to how the novels 
themselves tonally are quite insular and interior Mm -hmm. and how do you represent that on the screen as well so those two things for me sort of seem to run concurrently and I do think that one of the things that Sally Rooney does do so well is that kind of uniquely millennial experience Mm -hmm. of feeling really really connected to everyone at all times Mm -hmm. because of things like internet and social media but then also feeling really isolated at the same time yeah I think that she does she has managed to balance that, I think, in all three of her novels so far. Mm. There is this sort of back and forth between yeah. that as something as like a general sense of experience that I think mm. people of a particular age experience. I felt like Frances didn't know how to use a phone in this either. It's I was just, just like, she's writing weird, random... I, I don't know, it just... Even that community... Like, you know, you obviously get the the idea of them kind of not being able to communicate in person mm-hmm. because they're both quite awkward people and Frances struggles to, to kind of speak to anyone even mm-hmm. bobby or her parents but but the conversations i did see specifically nick and francis via text i was like this is fucking stunted as well so i don't even where are you how is this relationship building when you don't speak in person and your texts are just like you in yes coming that's kind of it and i think that's one of the worst things i've done really is remove the emailing aspect mm. because long passages of the book are yeah. them sending these like really really lengthy personal mm. emails to one another because it's the only way that they can kind of cut communicate under the radar yeah. and you're but just you not going to be able to adapt that you can't do you? that in text because no. who you know that's just not going you're not no. going to sit and do read a paragraph of text like it just no it work. just doesn't work so yeah. it's one of the biggest flaws um we have all we've sort of already touched on the casting and the characters themselves mm. How did you find it, casting-wise, character-wise? Because I just think there are real flaws here. Yeah, like in typical Rooney fashion, all of the characters felt frustrating at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that sense of things being sort of recognisable in their sort of normality and yeah. banality, but also people struggling with communicating with one another or behave in a way that is healthy, blah, 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 all of those things, which make it quite compelling and interesting and are things that you identify with. I thought Alison Oliver as Frances was actually great. She's brilliant. I thought she was brilliant. She's brilliant. I totally believed and understood her personality, her awkwardness, her distance from others. I understood her motivations and struggles too. She's a potential Florence Pugh in that she does a lot with her mouth. Yeah. Very sad mouth, which I thought was brilliant. Um, So I thought she was great. Sasha Lane as Bobby. I mean, again, I have no relationship to the book, so I don't know what Bobby should have been like. Um, I did think she was great as a performer. I understood her frustrations and how Frances treats her badly and how her sort of beliefs in relationships and monogamy and intimacy were often manipulated. So strong performance there. Jemima Kirk, I mean, she's always great, very cool, slightly intimidating, absolutely fine, but you don't see her, like, she's not used that much. It does just keep coming back to that Joe Alwyn thing. It's just unfortunately... That's the very big problem with this whole show, I think. I think the casting generally really took me out out of it at all times, really. Yeah. Joe Allman, you're right, he just isn't good. <laughs> He's not charismatic enough to be Nick. I just felt like no. he lacked any real emotional core. His accent was distressing. He just felt <laughs> really flat and pained at times. And Sally Rooney seems to focus a lot on Nick's masculinity and his strength, and I just don't think that Joe Alwyn captured oh, no, that in the he's slightest. Like painfully pathetic in it's a way, really... and I know he's supposed to be to a point. He's sort of I think Francis makes a joke about him not having a personality, but I like genuinely hooted at that because I don't think yeah. it's supposed to be that true. No, like it's yeah, you're right. It was kind of. I don't know. He's supposed to be sort of quite passive, isn't he? But it was like painfully so. It was the point where you just go, I'm just not sure what's there. And I feel bad saying that about Joe Alwyn's performance, but it just didn't, this didn't feel like a good character for him at all. I just don't think it was the right character for him at all. Um, Jemima Kirk was great and worked despite my concerns age-wise. There is something really interesting and clever, I think, about casting a girl's cast member mm, when especially yeah. when you i think you can argue or could argue that sally rooney was likely influenced by the sh- show mm-hmm. or at the very least that post girls wave of like being frank and open about one's mm, sexual relationships mm. and friendships with other women in particular so that to me did sort of feel like quite canny yeah that's like canny quite casting clever, and i do think that the real the real standout in the show though generally is alison oliver because i think she worked so well as francis Probably because she doesn't come with any baggage. Yeah. 
like at all. I she think, was very likable and understandable, actually. Yeah, even I mean, when she wasn't doing good things. Yeah, I mean, I think TV Francis for me felt less self-destructive than Francis is in the book, and sort of maybe more fragile and less mean. Um, I think Alice and Oliver captured that so mm, well in, mm. in an interesting way and I think mm. it's it's funny that you do mention Florence Pugh because she does so much she with has the sad she does so much with expression which mm. I think does sort of attempt to address that like insular nev- yeah. insular level mm-hmm. of what happens in the books mm. that interiority yeah definitely the one thing that got me actually emotionally from on a relationship level was Frances's relationship with her dad and my relationship with my dad is very different but in lots of you know it, I, I felt very connected to it as well just in terms of the pain of sort of parents divorce and when she's on the phone with her mum talking about her dad felt very real very painful so mm-hmm. I thought I thought that was very effective yeah. actually and again I think that spoke to how well Alison Oliver did I think she was great because it those were some of the only moments that actually really got me I mean I felt like I should have felt more when Nick was talking about his depression but after 11 episodes of basically no emotional attachment to him whatsoever I just couldn't feel sad about it and that's a real shame because that should have really had me in tears yeah and it just didn't yeah it's interesting that you pick up on the the parts of Frances with her parents actually because I think that's where like those parts were so well rendered god I I could identify with that and and actually my it's weird how I could identify with it even though like my relationship with my parents is different but there was just so much about it at the same time that I could just feel it yeah yeah of course really worked yeah absolutely I mean is there anything else? Sort of was your... kind of my <laughs> kind of it. I just felt like if we hadn't been honestly, if we hadn't been reviewing it on the podcast, I would have ducked out I don't after think... like five episodes. Well, we said that, didn't we? We said we wouldn't finish it. I just think everything about it felt forced, and ultimately, it's fine. It's fine. It's almost like neither bad, but also not good. It just felt like a chore to work through. It was a bit of a chore. It really lacks any rewatchability i often oh god no i think, wouldn't watch that again i often think about rewatching normal people yeah but i've not done it yet but i would go back to it mm. but with this it's like i have no inclination to work my way through it and i think i felt disappointed because it didn't really capture for me what was so good about the book yeah at all no and that's always and i sort such of, a bummer i just sort of wish i hadn't bothered no don't i maybe don't do that again bbc it's just you did it once that was a that might have been a one-hit wonder on the old Rooney front. I don't know. It just didn't work as well this time. I hope they don't th- touch the third book. No. Let's just not. They will. Them. They will, but... We'll see you again in two years' time when that when that adaptation comes out and we say we won't review it and then we do again. And finally, uh, a little whisk through, a little journey through Harry's house. <laughs> So um, Harry's House is the third studio album by Harry Styles, of course. It follows 2017's self-titled debut and 2019's Fine Line. Harry first announced news of the album along with its name, its artwork and a 40-second trailer on the 23rd of March. The first single, As It Was, arrived on the 1st of April and we got to hear the second single, Late Night Talking, for the first time during his Coachella set in April. Uh, along with Boyfriends, we got to hear that track too. Interestingly, Boyfriends was written straight after Harry wrote Lights Up for Fine Line. And by the time Harry embarked on his Love on Tour tour in 2021, this album was already recorded and ready to go. So I'll put a pin in that, but it's useful to note that the two albums recorded very closely to one another. Uh, for this album, Harry worked again with his longtime collaborators Kid Harpoon and Tyler Johnson. Of the 13 tracks on Harry's House, five are written solely by Styles, Harpoon and Johnson, who also serve as producers across the album. We've also got a bit of Mitch Rowland there, Mitch. April's favourites. Um, he's credited as a co-writer on Music for a Sushi Restaurant and Keep Driving, and he played drums on As It Was. Harry's House was released on the 20th of May by Columbia and Erskine Records, debuting at number one in the UK and in the US Billboard charts, as well as lots of other countries across the world, of course. It was leaked online a month before its release, but we were very, very good and we didn't listen to it. No, we did not. Nope. 
We are, of course, notorious Harry Styles fans, and this record was very highly anticipated for us. So what do we think? Let's talk a bit about that pre-release anticipation, kind of what were we expecting? What were you expecting? Uh, it's quite hyped. A little bit hyped. Though I was... I find it quite odd that we entirely missed a proper album cycle for Fine Line. We did, didn't Though, we? Obviously, we were lucky enough to see Harry at the end of 2019 playing some of those songs. Yeah. So I'm glad that we did experience that. That was a complete that. fluke. Glad that Absolute happened. fluke. Glad it happened now. Never happen again. So no. um, I was intrigued going into this new album, as I am with every Harry album cycle. What would his next direction be? Mm. Who would he be influenced by? Was absolutely loved as it was as a lead single brilliant video so good felt really excited did not listen to any of the leaks um because i felt like the timing of this album was just it was very well timed so i hadn't wanted to like i don't know ruin it for myself it's not what harry would want i can't disappoint him in such a way absolutely not no so that was my sort of pre-release hype i mean we're never not going to be hyped are we i think I expected this album to sound different, but mm-hmm. I had no idea what direction that might go in, yes. if that makes sense. It does, so I yeah. knew it would be different, but I didn't know how. Previous records have been kind of heavily influenced by a lot of classic rock, which felt like a very safe corner for him to stay in. Um, but he has sort of trailed the fact that he's been listening to a lot of sort of classical and instrumental music during his time living in Japan. Um, big traveller. Uh, so it could be kind of more experimental, maybe. As you say, there's always great anticipation um, when it's someone you love. That also comes with a little bit of fear because it's kind of like, please, just please don't make me a, a record I'm disappointed in because yeah. I actually have no idea what I would do with that. I just don't know. No. You said as it was, was great. It was a huge relief. More synth pop than I expected, probably. Loved it. But Loved brilliant. It. And then those those kind of Coachella shows with the likes of Shania Twain kind of made me think he was leaning towards something a bit poppier too and kind of a bit funky, as in funk infused, mm-hmm. which was kind of interesting. Um, I was also kind of slightly dreaded. It sounds, I'm not being snobby, but I slightly dreaded the idea of sharing this space with lots of other people which sounds stupid because it's Harry Styles and he's a huge star but for us personally as mm. in me and you and about two other people we know yeah for the the previous two album cycles it's been very personal it's basically just been us together we've so we've basically encountered them solo so the people who were like you know on social media even for example i just didn't have conversations with other people about it it was kind of purely an us thing and of course in the past couple of years he has this much broader appeal now across a lot more people that we know and i didn't know what sharing that and being bombarded by their opinions was like it's always been something that's and i don't mean that in a like he's mine but like a I don't know, it's been a very pers- weirdly personal experience for me with Harry Styles, even though he is so huge. Yeah. And it was being opened up to a lot of other people we know who would ordinarily not, like before, have not been interested in his work because it's yeah. not their style. But he's starting to do something now that appeals to them. And I was like, oh God, I'm actually going to have to talk about this way more publicly. Yeah, it's hard. It's not gatekeepy because that sounds really wanky. But it is hard when everyone starts giving a shit about the thing you love yeah it's just been weirdly personal yeah i frequently get this and get a bit stressed about it when you are there's a thing that you really 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 feel so passionate about and then other people suddenly start paying attention Mm. and it's like moderately irritating when you're just like he has always been good yeah and now you suddenly care that is my argument as my, well my beef has always been as well that the, the further away that he gets from his origins i.e one direction mm-hmm. is the more serious that everyone mm-hmm. takes him and it, i i find it it's a bit annoying because it's sort of like he's consistently been good and he was like this no offense to one direction because yeah. actually i have a lot of respect for most of them not liam payne um but harry was like the standout of yeah, that so yeah. he was always sort of destined yeah for more yeah um and you're right i don't think and we'll discuss this album i don't think personally there's that big a leap from no, like I don't. the debut to this like there's definite threads there that are similar um and it is just a very weird experience to go from having like two people's opinions who are greatly enamored by this yes to having like 20 people it's message weird. me it's weird. being like it's the, um, I love this record he's not shit anymore it's kind of it's just very weird it's the unfortunate experience of fandom I think 
I'm just used to sharing it with teenage girls, not with yeah. like thirty-year-olds who like listen to hardcore. Yeah. I just it's very um, yeah, it's, it's odd, just strange. Odd. But um, so one so our first listen, <laughs> where were we? So we've always I think had quite specific again specific personal memories of first listens. Yeah. So. I'm sure we listened to the first Harry Styles together and we went and got that record. Yeah. Um, and we listened to the record. We yep. bought the records together. Yeah. And then fine line, I have a very specific memory of waking up the day after we lost the election um, and sitting with my tea and toast and listening to it on the sofa at 5am. Yeah. So very specific memories. And our, what was our experience this time? Uh, we were both in bed. We were Separately, both in, bed. in different households. Sadly, for once, we weren't in the same bed. Yeah. Yes. Um... Because, and we both listened to it at approximately 10pm oh in the evening. so late in the day. On the day of release, because we'd both agreed that we would listen to it together. Have to do it together. To, somehow, to have a sacred experience. But you were getting tattooed. So annoyed, it was like the worst timing ever. And we were like, you simply can't listen to this while you're getting tattooed. No. Because you'll ruin the experience. And then I was like, I don't want to... There's just, for me, where Harry is concerned, I, I feel this way about music videos... Yeah. I feel this way about all of it is that I I almost feel like I'm committing a crime if I watch it before you. <laughs> we do it together. It reminds me of when I was a kid and my mum would get really annoyed with me if I read like the TV Times before her. <laughs> so similar. Or the Same newspaper before. Like, Did just, your mum used to do that? She used to get really annoyed if I'd read that. Well, TV like you Times. use the spoilers. I knew what like, was happening. You knew what was coming up on yeah. BBC Four. Anyway, same experience. I just, right. I, it, it would, it would feel morally wrong yeah. for me to have, have listened to it because ultimately you're the one person I want to talk to about this. And if I have listened, if I've listened to it, and then I, it's have a to very like, shared experience, and that's why again it's very weird to have a very big shared. experience. Yeah, I now. can't listen to it and then go like mm, I'm going to have to sit here for like nine hours until you get to it. It's, oh, it's so, do so it. bad. So, I was spending the whole. I had to get up at. I had to get up at six o'clock in the morning to drive for two hours somewhere to get bloody tattooed. Um, and I was like, so I don't want to get up at 5am to listen to it because I need to drive. I'm not driving in the car listening to it on the a- on the M25. No. I'm not listening to it when I get tattooed. No. By the time I get home, it would be 10pm. I cannot believe I'm going to have to wait. But what happened to you? Well, I went, so got tattooed, fine, blah, 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 blah. Went for dinner, was sat there with Wes was looking at the menu and suddenly realised they were playing Late Night Talking because I remembered it from Coachella and was like, shit. And I was like, Wes, either they're playing one song or... And then they started playing a new song and I was like, fuck, they're playing the album in this restaurant. And we were being served by a young girl. And I said to Wes, I was like, I have to go and tell her to turn this off. And he was like, you absolutely cannot do that. That is mortifying. And I was like, watch, hold my beer, hold my fizzy pop. I am going to talk to this girl. I like that that was his reaction. And you text me and told me and I was like, tell them to turn it off. I was like, I can't sit, I can't sit here ordering a pie and mash and have these, like, have it listen. No. I can't, my first listen no. cannot be in the background Halfway of a restaurant. Halfway through the album. It wasn't a sushi restaurant. So it didn't work. No. So I went to the till and I was like, hi. This is really weird because I'm like 20 years older than you. Um, You know this album? She was like, yeah. I was like, can you turn it off? (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, look, here's the thing. I have to listen to it with my best friend. And we've held off all day until I get home. And I can't have my first listen to it in this restaurant. And she was like, I totally get it. And she put on Fine Line. And it was great. And I was like, I'm just so glad I did that. Wow, I'm a grown adult and this is what I did. So that's what I did. And as you say, we, yeah, we ended up listening to it about 23 hours after everyone else did, which was annoying, but I'm just very glad that we preserved. I'm I'm very glad that we preserved that experience. And the first lesson was, yeah, I was lying under my duvet (laughs) with my headphones on. Um, with Wes fast asleep next to me. So I was having to like hold in. But it just started so big. Like that record starts so big. Huge. Like pop funk Prince vibes, which I was not expecting. The trumpets, just so joyful and so bright in a way that I wasn't expecting. No. And Fine Line felt like something that you'd listen to in the daytime, whereas Harry's house feels like a hot summer evening for me. It's like, I was so overwhelmed by it. And I was so happy. I was so pleased. I was surprised. There was surprising element. I think the kind of like the acoustic folky tracks. Yeah. I expected. Yeah, of course. But 
the more layered synth. I was not expecting no, that. And I the wasn't. funk elements, the kind of R&B funk elements, wasn't expecting that at all. And a lot of those songs were very rich and complex musically. And are going to sound fucking so good live. They're going to sound it like it's such a summery album. Mm-hmm. It's going to sound so huge live. I I think one of our first exchanges back and forth as we were texting about it was that like, why is he Prince? And then like, why is like, he so horny? Shit. This is so horny. He's so grown up. Wow. He's talking very horny all the time. We know he's a massive horn man's dog, on but heat. here it is. Yeah, and it's also interesting when you're anticipating something like this and you know the track titles in advance. It's really funny because you build an expectation of what things might sound yeah. like. And all of the internet expected Little Freak to sound like Kiwi. And then it was completely the opposite, completely which different. is just, I don't know, it's just really interesting. There were some instant favourites for me on first listen um, and a couple that felt less memorable, which we'll, I'm sure, now talk about. Yeah. Um, Now we've had a couple of weeks and a few extra spins aside. We have, of course, bought the records again and made a pilgrimage to do that. Um, I am turning 33 next week. It's fine. I'm having the best time doing all of this. It's a pure joy. What are your favourite tracks? My favourite tracks. Okay, so... um... There's nothing on this album that I hate. I will yep. preface that by That's saying. That's always good. I never, I've, there are never, of the of Harry's three albums, there is never, there are not a song I hate. There but you notoriously like, don't like Sign of the Times. I just think it's overrated. Oh my God. I just We're don't either. We're not doing um, this So now. my favourite songs are, at the moment, yeah. as it stands, big fan of uh, Music for a Sushi Restaurant. So I much. think it's such a great album opener, especially into Late Night Talking as well. Works so good. So well. What a pair. Nice opening pair. Um, as it was, man. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't get any less good. No. no. I keep thinking, so like, at some point I'm going to tap out and it's going to be like, yeah, it's fine. No. It just doesn't. It makes it's me so, so good. happy. It's the synthy, but it's all of the... The really synthy pop, joyful, dancey it's stuff. It's just dancey. Love it. Um, I love Matilda. Yeah. Just love it. I mean, who you were always going to. I was going to love it. A homage to Roald Dahl. I mean... Best book. Um, and I like cinema. <laughs> Even though it's quite cheesy. <laughs> I, mean, I love it. I do. I'm a cornball, love it. I just really dig your cinema. It's so corny, but I fucking love it. It's a great thing to I say to April when prompted when you're... Just out of the blue. Do you think I'm cool? I just... <laughs> Dinka Cinema. Um, um, I think those are, yeah, those are probably my favourite five at the moment. Uh, uh, I agree with you on one of those. Satellite is also um, probably one of my favourite songs he's ever written. Mm-hmm. And that big sort of crescendo near the end. It's going to sound great. So good. It's going to sound go- so good. And I also really like Daylight, even though initially I was like, mm, it's fine. But on further listen, I have decided that I really like Daylight. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Satellite, Music for a CT Restaurant, Late Night Talking, as it was cinema <laughs> good choices least favorite. yeah um boyfriends is my favorite of the stripped back songs that kind of folkier songs actually i like boyfriends you don't <laughs> oh my god i don't hate it well you can't hate it's it it's just one of my least <gasps> favorites oh okay that's fine it's not bad is it no i grape juice is not my favorite no same i think that might be a slight filler track it was the point when we were discussing it we were like mm, this feels like a filler yeah <laughs> did you know that as it was was going to be the song they cut Imagine if they'd cut as it was, but kept grape juice. I would be in no. Yeah, that hasn't grown on me really. It's not bad. I'm just not as fussed by it. Yeah. I'm not as lesser fussed. <laughs> I'm lesser fussed by Little Freak or Keep Driving as well. But it's not that it's bad. I think it's very much a taste-based thing for me mm. because they probably lean further into sounds that I don't listen to as much, if that makes sense. I just would like to say that the reason Boyfriends is my least favourite is it's just a bit cringe. But is it, it because he's definitely been that boyfriend? Yeah, but I think that's the point. It is the point, and it's not. It isn't a bad song. I just find it a little bit cringe. But in a Harry way, where you're like, oh, I can't be angry at this. Well, this is the thing about if Harry anyone Styles, else did it, if it was yeah. an Ed Sheeran song, yeah. for example, I absolutely deplorable crime yeah. against humanity. Why am I having to be listening to this? Yeah. When Harry does it in the context of this album, I'm like, it's fine, and it'll be nice live if he yeah. does the acoustic strip back. His voice is does. so beautiful. It's lovely. His voice is yeah, insanely fine. good. It's just a little, like, a little bit lovely. mortifying about it. Yeah, I think the thing with Harry is when you pay attention to his lyrics some of them are really really good and some of them are quite cheesy this is, and, and he carries it off yeah 99.999% yeah. of the time there's probably like two longs two lines on this record that i'm like you, you should have cut that yeah. um one of them is that first line in little freak 
stop talking about Jezebels. We're not not, not the side boob. Little freak Jezebel. No, I like the side boob. Do you think that Ameri- side boob summer? We like keeping it. Do you think that Americans know what side boob is? Second question: Do they know what a flake is? I keep thinking about this. No, I don't. Let's ask. Reply. Do you don't get ninety nines in America? You don't even get ninety nines here now. No, exactly. They're like two pounds seventy four. You don't get a flake. No. Cup of tea, little cup of tea and toast. That's that's very British things. Um, I do also like Love of My Life as a finisher. I always like the end tracks of Harry's records. So yeah, I think I like it. I don't think it's my favourite of his ending songs. No, Fine Line is the best ending song that he'll ever write. But um, yeah, how do we think it compares next to his other records? I feel like it's a grower. Yes. I feel like the more I listen to it, the more I will go through phases mm-hmm. with the songs, which is when I say I don't hate any of the songs, I don't, because I feel like I'm going to go through phases, as I have a real tendency to do with Harry songs. I just kind yeah. of go through a, a, like periods of listening to them individually, obsessively. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely not up there for me yet. However, I will say that I think that seeing the songs live will help, and I'm interested yeah. to sort of see how I then find the album after we've seen him in a couple of weeks you've time. had that experience and I will say that it does feel like it's a natural progression for him oh, in yeah. the sense that I do think that his sound is developing over every record in a way I find mm-hmm. really interesting yeah. you said that you didn't really know you knew it would be different but you didn't know how it would be different mm-hmm. and that's that's what exactly what I mean mm. by that is that I feel like he does mm. sort of he's learning and it's interesting mm. and I like that yeah and I think it's interesting as i said before at the intro that for us there are three years between these records so it feels like oh it's such a growth but actually he recorded this record very soon after fine line yeah which means that actually as a and it does sound like as you say like a growth and a progression and it feels like he's more confident on this record but yeah, it had a really short window of time, which is just very interesting because it's not like he spent three years in lockdown completely percolating and then wrote something. A lot of it was written like before a lot of that took place. Yeah, I have a real fascination about albums that come out like really rapidly yeah. and when they were produced essentially mm. within the same time frame. I think often that's quite fruitful. Yeah, but they don't sound like they were produced. No. Like, as you said, there are definite elements of the other records. So... We've mentioned before, like, Treat People With Kindness, From The Dining Table, even Fine Line. Um, So there are those elements, and you can feel those through, like, those Mm -hmm. threads through the records. But it does sound different. Yes. Um, I'm still a very big fan of Fine Line. I have listened to it to death. I think it's my favourite. Yeah, nice to retire it for a bit. Um, And I have so many great memories and feelings tied to that record. Mm -hmm. But as you say, I think when we go and see this live... I think that will really, I don't know, help develop my feelings to each of these yeah, songs. Completely. And I can totally see that this will be the record that launches him like fully into the tr- stratosphere as like he was an A-lister and now he's like an AAA, like triple A-lister, mm-hmm. like he's big. Yeah. Um, it's gonna, f- it's gonna feel great driving around listening to. Hopefully, yeah, that was my immediate reaction. Actually, I think we were when we were listening. I was like, God, I just want to be in a car with you driving somewhere like listening to this yeah should we go to the beach let's go now let's just go right now let's do it good times so that's us done you can find us on twitter we're at the thirst and instagram at the thirst pod or you can drop us an email on the thirstpod at gmail.com let us know what you thought of any of the things we reviewed today and please subscribe to the podcast on apple spotify or wherever you like to listen and maybe even give us a nice review it helps people to find us easily and um, we'll continue to share links to anything we mention on our blog which is the thirstpod.wordpress.com and also maybe have a look in the show notes as well on the episode And we will catch you later in the month for Obsession of the Week. Bye. Bye.